So since we're standing now just a few short days before the holiday of Purim, I, I thought this would be a great time to really discuss the concept which is so central to the Purim experience, and which is also such an important one within the Torah as a whole. And that's the concept of simcha, meaning joy or happiness. You know, we all know that in order to really pour our hearts into whatever we're doing, we've got to enjoy it. And there are so many studies out there that have shown that there's actually a positive correlation between happiness and productivity. If we're feeling good about what we're doing, we tend to do it better. You know, and most people nowadays consider the pursuit of happiness to be this unalienable right of being human. But the question always remains the same. Is our happiness outside of our control, governed by our circumstances, or can I actually generate happiness on my own? What's the Torah's take on happiness? And how central is it to the lifestyle of a faithful Jew? I'm Chaim Davies, and this is The Chaim Davies Show. Welcome back to the show. So the Talmud, at the end of Tractate Ta'anit, famously tells us that Adar Marbim when the month of Adar, the last month of the Jewish calendar, begins, we're meant to increase in our amount of happiness. And as the commentaries explain, this is because the month of Adar begins a season of new beginnings, of salvation from exile and of recognizing God's presence and guiding Israel's history every step of the way. So the holiday of Purim falls on the 14th and the 15th of Adar, where we celebrate this great victory of the Jews in Shushan over Haman's devious plot to, uh, to wipe out the Jewish people. And then just one month later, on the 15th of Nisan, we celebrate Pesach, Passover, at the time that the Jews left Egypt. So this is a season which beckons us out of the cold, dark winter months and into a bright, welcoming spring, a time where God's presence shines on our people and leads us towards all these great things in our, in our future. But here's the thing. What does it mean to increase in happiness? I mean, what are we supposed to like dance around in the streets or something? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know of any magical buttons you can press on the human being anywhere, which automatically upgrades our happiness level. And like, don't you think if it was so simple to just get happier, we'd all be doing it by now? You know, the reality on the ground is that according to a recent study I read in 2020, at the University of Chicago, only 14% of United States citizens say that they're happy, 14%. And that's down from 31% in 2018, which is still, I mean, an alarmingly low number. I mean, we're living in the wealthiest, most highly educated, bountiful and decadent society in all of recorded world history. Our life expectancy has skyrocketed in the past 100 years. Our financial stability has improved tenfold. We're less at risk for a whole slew of medical issues and all sorts of tragedies due to this incredible screening technologies, preventative medicines that we have. I mean, we live with luxuries today that even royalty couldn't dream of having just 100 years ago. I mean, listen, we've got indoor plumbing. We've got refrigeration, for God's sake. I mean, we've got climate-controlled homes. We're connected to the entirety of the human race and all of the knowledge and innovation over the past 3,000 years, all on the internet, at all times. We can enjoy all sorts of futuristic technologies, indulgences, entertainment. How is it possible that on average, we're more miserable today than ever before? From what I can tell, we're, we're trying harder nowadays to be happy than any assembly of human beings has ever tried before. And yet we're failing epically. And then comes the Talmud and says, yeah, you know, so when Adar arrives, just kick up your happiness level a notch. 
And there's no like follow-up or clarification about this in the Talmud. Are we missing something here? Is there a reason why the rabbis saw it so simple, apparently, to achieve happiness, and yet we're having such a difficult time? Now, mind you, this isn't just a Purim thing in Judaism. The Torah takes for granted that all our emotions are within our ability to control. And I say within our ability because we don't automatically control them, right? We're creatures of habit and creatures of reaction. We are governed by our drives unless we learn through hard work and guidance and really putting in the effort how to take the reins and drive our drives themselves to the goals that we've established for them. And that's how the Torah instructs the Jewish people to have all sorts of emotions. I mean, there are mitzvot about loving God, about revering Him, loving all members of the nation, caring for the welfare of the convert, for the orphan, for the widow, and and more. How can the Torah ask of us to love someone that we don't? I mean, isn't love something that we just stumble into, according to, at least according to the latest common opinion in our culture today? Unless we understand that the Torah is asking us to love, and thereby to take certain actionable steps towards achieving that goal. Learn about God through his creation. Read his incredible writings, and you'll find so much to love. Start really taking care of your fellow Jewish people, your brothers and sisters. Make sure that they're financially stable. Speak with that, to them with a smile on your face, and you'll find yourself building bridges of love between one another. And so the same is true with our happiness, according to the Torah. There are steps that we can take to create those emotions, to experience that happiness. And I'll show you how the Torah sees happiness in particular as absolutely vital to not only our humanity, but to our participation in the covenant with him through our study and experience of the Torah. So we've mentioned the tochacha in the past. This is the section of the Torah which outlines what our people's life could look like if we stay true to the covenant, and in contrast with what could happen if we're unfaithful and break that bond. And we've seen both types of existence in our people's history. You know, there were times where we lived in peace and wealth and spiritual richness in our homeland, like in the times of King Solomon, surrounded by the divine presence. And and then there have been all too many times where we've been dealt the most horrific fate of all of humanity, the barbarism, the inhumane torture, the starvation, and everything which, you know, being exiled and distant from God's presence really entails. So these are both outlined in pretty graphic detail within the Torah. But there's a jaw-dropping line in the middle of this entire presentation. So while the Torah is in the middle of outlining these catastrophes that the Jewish people are going to have to deal with, the flow of the text stops to tell us why we're dealing with all these horrors. And it says the most amazing thing. Here's the language of the verse. Tachat asher lo avadata et Adonai lohecha besimcha uvetuv levav merov kol veavadata et oivecha. Because you did not serve God with joy and with a happy heart while you lacked nothing, so you will serve your enemies instead in misery and difficulty while lacking everything. So wait a minute. I mean, here we were thinking that facing all these horrors would be a result of breaking the covenant. And by that we thought it meant not fulfilling the commandments. But now comes along the Torah and says, well, actually, one minor detail. You could actually be fulfilling all the mitzvot of the Torah and still be considered to be breaking the covenant if you're not doing the mitzvot with joy. Happiness in a good heart is the make it or break it piece of keeping the Torah. If the Torah's instructions are being upheld, but they're not being infused with joy, then we aren't accomplishing our side of the deal, our side of the relationship with God. And so the brilliant Rabbeinu Bachya ben Asher of the 14th century zeroes in on this line of the Torah 
in his essay on happiness, in his book, Kad HaKemach, and explains to us that you see from here that happiness in performing mitzvot is actually sort of a meta mitzvah. It's the way in which all mitzvot should be kept. And he goes as far as to say that you see from these verses that happiness is a form of service of God, which is even more important than the mitzvot themselves. So, I mean, talk about the importance of happiness. The entire upkeeping of the covenant literally pivots on this issue of doing mitzvot with joy. And so if we're going to keep our sign of the covenant, and if we're going to get out of Torah what it's capable of providing us, then we really need to understand happiness a bit more than we do now. And that's the only way we're going to be able to infuse this month of Adar with more happiness as well. So I think we need to start with our definitions. What is happiness? I mean, yes, we all know it's something that we experience emotionally. It's pleasurable. It makes us feel good. But that isn't quite a definition, is it? I mean, feeling proud of yourself, feeling brave, being in love, those are also all emotional feelings, which are pleasurable. But those obviously aren't all one and the same. So what's unique about happiness? What's unique about that pleasure, that emotion? So there's a Mishnah, an ancient teaching of our oral tradition in the fourth chapter of Tractate Avot. And the Mishnah asks us, Ezehu Ashir, who is truly wealthy? You know, we tend to define wealth in a, in a relative sense. Someone rich in a poor village would be considered poverty-stricken compared to some affluent first-world suburban community. So who is truly wealthy? What constitutes actual wealth? Says the Mishnah, Hasameach Bechelko, someone who is happy with what he has. Who is happy with his portion in life is the person who's truly wealthy. Why is that the definition of true wealth? So I believe that this Mishnah is not only telling us who's truly wealthy, but it's also providing us the essential key to understanding happiness as well. You know, maybe we can't pin down an emotion into a set of words, a, a proper dictionary definition. But we can figure out what creates that emotion most consistently and sustainably for us. And that can be a tremendous help in figuring out how to get more of it. So what is happiness? And when does it happen to us? When do we experience it? So the best way I came up with to articulate this is as follows. Happiness is a positive emotional feeling that a person has when they focus on and take pleasure in that which they experience. Now, don't just take my de definition at face value. Let's try to unpack this and really try to understand it. So the brilliant Rabbi Noah Weinberg, blessed memory, once explained the idea of this Mishnah using the following analogy. And I've actually ran this experiment in a classroom setting, and it always goes along the exact same lines. So imagine I come into the room where you and a bunch of your friends are hanging out, and I say to the room, hey guys, listen up. I've got some really sad news, okay? A friend of mine just got into this terrible car accident. He's doing all right, but... It, unfortunately, he actually sustained a whole bunch of injuries, and he's actually looking to receive transplants for a number of body parts. And they're looking for people interested in potentially selling a number of, you know, items of their body for, for the right price. Now, he's a wealthy guy, so he's willing to put forward a starting offer of $100,000 for a new left arm. Anyone of you that'd be interested to maybe offer your own arm for sale? So you say to me, I mean, no way. I mean, I wouldn't even do that for a million dollars. So I say to you, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what I expected. A million bucks, your left arm, okay. How about for two million? No? Five million? So at that point, usually some wise guy in the room usually says, yeah, 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 I do it for five million. Okay, I say, you've got a deal. Now, how about for a pair of eyes? Anyone willing to give up their vision for asking price of five million dollars? So at that point, the wise guy says, oh, no, 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 no way. You couldn't pay me enough 
to give up my eyes. But there's usually another guy who pipes up and says, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd maybe do it for $100 million, right? Because then I could buy myself some high-tech electronic eyes or something, and it'd be just as good. So I say back, I say, you know, it's probably true, you know, with all that money, you'd, you'd probably be able to experience at least somewhat of a normal life again, but do you really think you'd do it for $100 million? Probably not, if it came down to it. I hear you. Well, anyone else who might be interested in selling their legs or their ears or even teeth? I mean, name your price. There's no real way I would sell any part of me. And, you know, people end up backing up at that point and they say, I'm sorry, but, you know, there's no price tag that would, that would meet any aspect of my body. And so at this point, Rev. Noah Weinberg would drive home the most powerful point and he would ask the class the following question. He'd say, so you're telling me that you wouldn't sell any part of who you are for practically any amount of money in the world. You valued your arms at millions, your, your eyes at $100 million, your legs are priceless. I mean, altogether, you approximate the value of your own body as being worth billions of dollars to you. Is that right? Now, suppose you bought a lottery ticket on your way home today, and you find out that you just won the lottery. You won $100 million, a billion dollars. I mean, how do you think you'd feel? You'd be shrieking with excitement, right? I mean, you'd be practically throwing around your money to all your friends, buying whatever you want. I mean, you'd be on top of the world. And imagine if while you're throwing that big party with all your friends, right, while you're feeling on top of the world, someone said something negative to you. You know, they insulted you. They said something mean. Would it affect you? No, you say. I mean, I'd be on top of the world. Nothing anyone said could possibly bring me down. And here was where Rav Noah Weinberg would drop the final punch. Well, my friends, I have some news for you. If that's all true, then you should be jumping for joy right now because you're already rich beyond compare. You have your entire body worth billions of dollars according to your own estimation. Why aren't you jumping for joy? Wow, so I mean, there's a shock factor in that realization, but we all know the answer intuitively to this question, even if we haven't articulated it to ourselves before. You see, there's only one factor differentiating between that lottery win and the joys of your life, of having your body that you already possess. And the difference is, we take our current pleasures for granted. I mean, sure, theoretically, my body is worth billions to me, but I'm used to it already. Everyone has these things already. It's nothing special. The only difference between that billion dollars and this billion dollars is whether I'm currently still enjoying it. And so by not focusing and appreciating what we currently have, all we've done is diminished our own ability to draw that maximum amount of happiness from the experience. You know, there's an old saying in Jewish consciousness which goes, I was once miserable for having no shoes until I met the man who had no feet. You know, sometimes it takes that contrast of what things could be like to help us appreciate what things actually are. Because when you clarify to yourself and really stop to realize the incredible value of the things that you already have is, and you understand what kind of emotional response you would have from receiving that amount of value in another circumstance, and then you really internalize that you already have that value in your life, it's in that moment that you have taken the abstract knowledge of your wealth and allowed it to truly enrich you. When you begin to really rejoice in your portion, you allow whatever it is that you have to bring you an incredible depth of joy. And in that moment, you begin to master the art of generating happiness. So we're living in this world where we have more than ever to take for granted. I mean, we're absolutely flooded with indulgences of every kind, 
Whether it's the foods that we eat or the clothing or technology we can purchase at a steal of a deal or the amenities which even royalty couldn't have dreamed of before today. And yet with all of this, it just serves to drive us further away from happiness rather than closer to it. Now, to be clear, it's definitely true that having all that money and comfort does help to an extent, but only to an extent. A 2010 study out of Princeton University found that there is a correlation between happiness and wealth, but only to the point of about $75,000 per year. But once people make more than about $75,000 a year, which is just a drop above the median household income in the United States, their happiness generally doesn't increase at all based on how much more money they're earning. And that's an incredible thing because we've created this illusion in our society and within ourselves that we've got to keep chasing to be able to provide ourselves and our families with all these incredible things and vacations and indulgences in order to be happy. But the truth is that once we hit a bit above middle class, it turns out that it isn't those things which are going to generate the happiness we're after after all. It's us that generate the happiness. So how does this affect our Judaism? I mean, how doesn't it? The great Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal in the 16th century, is quoted by his contemporary, Rabbi Elazar Azkari of the Sefer Haredim, as saying that he attributed all his breakthroughs in wisdom, knowledge of the Torah, divine inspiration itself, to the merit of the fact that he would perform every mitzvah that he could with extreme, endless joy. And to begin reveling in this joy, the ball is already in our court. We're blessed with an endless stream of goodness in our lives. Our lives themselves are a completely undeserved gift. <laughs> you know, none of us did anything to justify our being created in the first place, right? And if I can speak for myself, I'm not sure that I'm really earning my keep here either. You know, and then we've been gifted this Torah, this incredible guide for life from the Almighty who loves us and simply wants us to tap into our potential, achieve greatness in our lives. What are we sitting around for? There's enough energy in this moment of life to bring us leaping to our feet in joy. And it all comes down to us, to our ability to tap into that pleasure and to appreciate it for what it is. So, you know, just to tie this back into the ideas of Purim in the month of Adar, the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat says that way back on Mount Sinai, when the Jewish people received the Torah in that great mass revelation moment, there was something missing in the experience. There was a sense of coercion, a feeling of, well, there's no other option but this. I mean, what are we going to say no, you know, when God's reality is so clear? And that sense of accepting the Torah due to there being no other option left a lingering taste in the mouths of the Jewish people, which, according to the Talmud, lasted for hundreds of years until Purim. Purim? Yes, until Purim. Because when Purim rolled around and the happiness of the Jewish people reached new heights, when they recognized how God's love for our people is eternal, and flows through our lives, even when we don't notice it there, they reach the state of perfection, of wholeness in their relationship with God, where they no longer sense the Torah as an imposition of any kind. On the contrary, the Torah became luminous to them, became inviting and opening to them, opening them towards possibilities that they never allowed themselves to see until that point in time. And so, as the great Rabbi Yehuda Loi, the Maharal of Prague, writes in his commentary to Tractate Avot, that it was only through that simcha, that happiness, that they were able and ready to receive the Torah in its entirety on Purim without any of those previous inhibitions. The possibility for self-perfection that the Torah can provide a person are only able of being actualized when the person in question is in a state of true simcha, of true joy.
Now, none of us become happiness gurus overnight, right? Growth and improvement takes time and consistent effort. We've got our work cut out for us. But happiness is a result of truly reflecting on and appreciating what we have. I mean, we're so blessed. Humanity is so blessed. Our people, the nation of Israel, are so blessed. We're so fortunate to have each other, to have our families, to have the people in our lives, to be here in this world. The ball's in our court. Take time each day to be thankful for what you have, what you've been gifted, and there will be no one wealthier than you. So I'm wishing you all a happy Adar and a fantastically joyous Purim. And I hope that as we put in that effort, we'll all be able to experience the happiness, the true wealth that each and every one of us already has. I'm Chaim Davies, and this is The Chaim Davies Show. See you all next time. I hope you enjoyed that segment of The Chaim Davies Show. If you did, be sure to subscribe, hit the notification bell, or follow our podcast so you can stay up to date on all our future content. Thank you.